0: Hello! Coming to you from New York City, this is Disaster Politics, the podcast that explores the intersection of policy and legislation with disaster preparedness, response, and recovery. I'm your host, Jeff Slegamelch. Thanks everyone for joining us today on Disaster Politics Podcast. We've got a topic today that's really near and dear to my heart. We have Suzanne Bernier talking about her work with the the book and the podcast and the movement around disaster heroes, really shining a light on these individual stories where ordinary people do extraordinary things in times of crisis for the benefit of themselves, their families, their communities, and, you know, capturing this, finding ways to be positive in a field that is uh, too often defined by negativity uh, is really really important in its own right but in our conversation too we also start getting into you know how is the field how are the politics around disasters how are the these uh, procedure based methods of responding to a disaster adapting to these emergent actors within community um, what's been done what's being done and what more can be done to help shine a light on these really amazing stories that we would love to um, see less disasters but continue to celebrate the heroism that does occur when disasters inevitably occur. So thanks for joining in. Uh, sit back, relax, and we'll see you on the other side. All right, thanks, everyone, for joining us today. Today, we have the privilege of speaking with Suzanne Bernier. She's a former journalist and government press secretary, is now a multi-certified, award-winning and internationally recognized crisis management consultant. She's also a prolific public speaker and author of the critically acclaimed book, Disaster Heroes, which, of course, we'll talk about today. Uh, she also has a new podcast, the Disaster Heroes podcast, um, which we'll talk about as well. Uh, all really centered around finding ordinary people doing extraordinary things to prepare for, respond to, and recover from disasters. Um Uh, She was recently named 2016's Continuity and Resilience Consultant of the Year by the Business Continuity Institute, and among her many, many speaking accolades, uh, recently in 2016 spoke at the White House during FEMA's Individual and Community Preparedness Awards Ceremony. So with that and many, many more things, uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Suzanne.
1: Hey, Jeff. It's great to be on your podcast. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, of course. Of course. You know, I, I certainly, in the couple of sentences I said, probably didn't do justice to the uh, breadth of experience that you have and bring to the table. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit more about uh, your background and kind of how you how you got involved in emergency management and how that kind of influences the way you're looking at things.
1: Sure. Um, thanks for asking. And I got in the field when it wasn't even called a field back in, you know, over 20 years ago. It was probably closer to 25 years ago where I had made the shift from being in the government Um, and being a media person, and then a media relations spokesperson, and then um, was asked to join the civil service and be the spokesperson and the media relations person originally for our public safety division in the province of Ontario, similar to a state in the U.S. And so at that point, Emergency Management Ontario, which would have been the equivalent to our state-level FEMA kind of office, emergency management office, I was appointed as their spokesperson, media person, as well as our public safety area, such as the coroner's office and the Center for Forensic Sciences, and a couple of other key areas, the fire marshal's office, and, um, but I really, really was fascinated by the work that specifically the Emergency Management Ontario Group were doing. And this was back before 9-11, back before Hurricane Katrina, back before most people even knew that FEMA existed, let alone these other smaller organizations that were helping to ensure the safety of communities. And so when I was doing work a quarter of the time for them, I realized, wait a minute, I don't want to just talk about all the great work that these people do, at emergency management ontario and how these officers go out and help communities respond and recover from disasters i want to be one of these officers so i went into the director's office at the time again this was over 20 years ago when emergency management wasn't a career at the time it wasn't a recognized profession there were no universities that had that as a program at the time but i went into the director and i said what i thought and then they sent me to the only institution in Canada at the time where you could get trained in emergency management and it was run by our federal government at the time and back then it was mostly retired fire chiefs and police chiefs and that kind of thing that would get assigned by their communities to here you go develop an emergency plan um, for our community and so they would go to this this college center and they would get trained in these intensive week-long courses in emergency management, and there were, I believe, five intense courses at the time to take. So they sent me there um, after I requested that I wanted to be an officer, not just a spokesperson. And I went, and fortunately, I, I went through all of the courses um, with mostly all of those retired fire chiefs and police chiefs who were great with me, and and I learned from real people who had responded to real emergencies throughout their whole careers. So it was a wonderful experience to be able to learn from seasoned professionals like that. Um, boots on the ground type people. Um, and then getting that practical knowledge and then I happened to then get out of the, the college at that time and there was an opening for an officer and timing just worked out well and I, um, I interviewed for it and, and got the position. And by getting that position, now that I look back, Uh, I didn't realize at the time, but I became the first female uniformed field officer in the province of Ontario by getting that position. It had all been men before. Um, So that was an achievement now that I look back on it. There have since been dozens of women in the field. And of course, it's burgeoning with women now, which is wonderful to see. Um, But so that's how I entered in the field, very indirectly. And then, of course, as you know, most of us who get into the field, once you get into it and you realize what you're doing and how you're benefiting communities um, for after disasters, you, you can't get out of it. You're, you're hooked. And so I was hooked from the minute that I made that change um, into the field of emergency management. And I spent about six years on the ground responding to disasters. But most of my other duties was when there wasn't a disaster to get sent to and deployed to and at that point I would work in the emergency operations center with the community as the government resource and liaison person to help them um, get whatever resources that they would need that much quicker um, by having me there to be able to be that in-between person. Um, But also when there weren't emergencies I would be working with about 45 different communities that I was assigned to in my area Um, where during non-emergency times, I would help them make sure they would be prepared. Everything from reviewing or helping them develop their emergency plans to then developing training courses and running training on how to ensure that their identified staff are trained accordingly in case of an emergency, and then, of course, responding to and then helping people recover from. Um, So it was a wonderful opportunity to be able to have that boots-on-the-ground type of experience from the beginning.
0: You know, it, it, it just, as you're saying this too, I'm thinking of uh, some of the other conversations we've had on the podcast and elsewhere in the field and that you and I have had uh, offline. It, it, it's amazing how prolific emergency management is now, but it's so quick to, to kind of take for granted um, how recent that is, right? And that, you know, there's some programs, some researchers who have been doing this for Maybe a few decades, but by and large, a lot of the landscape of emergency management is completely unrecognizable than it was, in, in the after the the, well, the post 9/11 kind of influx of resources. So I really really appreciate um, kind of that reminder, and also talking about just how how little was and perhaps still is known about kind of the nuts and bolts of emergency management. Um, I'm curious as well too. So so with your work with Disaster Heroes, you know, one of the things. Um, a colleague, Mark Burtis, who was on this podcast, made the comment that I, I steal from him a lot that his boss only, as an emergency manager, his boss only knows what he does when he screws up. <laughs> it's, <laughs> o- it's only when something goes wrong that, that people sort of get to look at it. And, you know, uh, FEMA is kind of mired by these controversies whenever a disaster goes bad. Where did FEMA go wrong? And it's it's very difficult to, in the midst of a disaster where there's always those who aren't served, to be able to celebrate the little things that do go well. Um, but you seem to have managed to crack the code on that and actually find a way where we can really celebrate um, some of the heroism that occurs during a disaster um, without uh, sort of drawing criticism from from the other failures, which are still important to, to acknowledge, of course, in the purpose of improvement. Um, but I'm curious, you know, what What led you to the kind of storytelling with Disaster Heroes and trying to shine a light on these things in disasters?
1: Right. Well, I had, and as you know, every time we respond to a disaster in a community, um, we, we see so much in the background that the everyday person doesn't see in the media and in the news reports. And and i'm and i'm not faulting the media at all but there's only so much time that we can report in the media on things that go on and then it's off to the, the next story um and but what we see when we're on the ground is i think a lot of the positive things that a lot of people don't really necessarily get to see unless they're involved um at our kind of level and i thought on where it really came to where i became enlightened really i guess um, in the need to be able to tell these types of positive stories of what we see in the background during the rebuilding and the response and recovery process in emergencies, um, was to be able to shine a light on the positive side and remind people that there are a lot of good things and good people coming together. So my one goal was—I had several goals, I guess. One was to remind people that every time we come together, in the background, there are a lot of positive things going on, and that we can't prevent every single disaster from happening. Um, we try to do a lot of mitigation um, and then respond as quickly as possible, but but still, we need to be prepared um, to be able to to ensure that you know that that we're ready and we're planning for right types of people and what people are really going through. And I thought the best way for us to get a handle on that is to be able to shine a light not only on the positive um, stories of what's going on, but the people involved and really get to share the stories of the people who are going through disasters and who are also coming up with ways to be able to get through those disasters and maybe help their communities respond and recover and rebuild. Um, And I think a lot of us in the industry after a while tend to get bogged down by um, plans and procedures of how we need to follow certain things to be able to develop a plan and develop a process to be able to respond or recover. And because of that, sometimes we don't really get to focus in on the human element. And the bottom line is we're really doing this for people, right? So the best way for us to get a feel for the kinds of plans and the kinds of procedures and things that we need to do for them is to be able to tell the stories of the people who are going through it. And I think that I've been able to to be able to do that is act as a voice for those people who are not only heroically responding, but to the survivors now as well, um, who are looking for the voices to help us as an industry um, be able to learn those lessons from those who were directly impacted which I think that's something that was missing in our field for the longest time, was we do a lot. We do great lessons learned, and we all come together as industry colleagues and as leaders from different response agencies or other organizations to look at what we've done well, what we didn't do so well. We haven't much taken into account the survivors themselves and their stories and learn from them. And I think that that's what we're realizing now as a community, that that's so important to do. And I think that's why now people are recognizing and acknowledging that we need to focus on these these everyday heroes and these survivors and sharing their stories. And, and maybe, I don't know that I've answered your question, but I'll I'll kind of explain how I was really inspired to really write the book. Was because I met the inspiration for the book when I was helping with a voluntary building effort in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. And when I was there, I realized, wow, this is nothing like what I'm seeing on the news with the coverage of, you know, there was a lot of negative coverage post-Katrina um, during the recovery efforts. And when I got there, right away, I was struck by how it looked nothing like um, it did in the reports. And, and there were so many good things and people coming together. And specifically one person that I I started talking to him and found out something amazing that he did. And it wasn't after his own um community disaster in New Orleans, but it was something that he did after 9-11 um, from his living room in New Orleans, um, but that he did to give back to New York City after 9-11. And when he was sharing that story and we're all rebuilding together and I'm seeing community members and volunteers and famous people and fire people all come together, I thought this is the type of stuff that people need to hear about. And this is what's going to inspire the everyday heroes and us. To be able to know that yeah we can all come together and we all do come together in emergencies and we need to keep inspiring people to do that.
0: I I think that's such an important message you know I was talking with a a colleague a public information officer in um, an area in North Carolina affected by Hurricane Florence and she described her role as um, uh, telling the story of the recovery um and, and and i don't know why that that really stuck with me in a in a good way that you know that that it's about telling the story and i interpreted that to mean telling the whole story right not just um, being an arm of the advocacy for the interests of the community, but 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 really sharing where the success is, where the needs, where the things, so folks really have as rich of an understanding as possible. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, oftentimes in after-action reports and media coverage, like there there's a certain, it's easy to ground ourselves in the logic of bureaucracy, right? There are certain procedures that need to be followed or changed, and we end up kind of fine-tuning those things. Um, but there's, it's all theoretically at least a means to an end to, to better serve the survivors and and um in, in addition to just correcting the missteps we also need to know what went well so we can replicate that so we can celebrate that so we can make sure that we keep doing that and use that as a model of 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 what we want to bring to scale so i i, I very much appreciate um not only what you're saying now but what you're doing to kind of move the field and create a, a space where we can um have those conversations uh, in a way that that really justifiably celebrates those who deserve to be celebrated. Um, kind of along these lines, you know, uh, we've been talking a little bit about kind of these government systems, and how we can better kind of integrate this into the way we do disaster preparedness and response. Um, so with Disaster Heroes, with the, the, the book, with the podcast, with the, the um, various talks and forums, right, there's sort of this, like, Government adjacent place where we where you can talk about these things. How how would you see this kind of folding back into the way we we plan for disasters and prepare for disasters? Do you see a space for for doing this in more of a uh, official capacity, if you will?
1: Yeah, and I think that we're fortunately, I'm really seeing a change in us welcoming these types of maybe not the term everyday heroes in the field right now, but At least looking at those types of, and I would maybe call them second responders um, or secondary responders, those others that we can look at to pull from their expertise in areas that we might not be familiar with as emergency managers um, or crisis coordinators. And I think that I'm seeing that a lot more now with FEMA, where, you know, for the past several years now, you had mentioned that um, I've been at an awards ceremony that they had held and they, and they hold that every year where they're recognizing the capability of individuals and communities who are coming up with creative ways to be able to help their communities either be prepared for or, or mitigate or prevent completely or respond and recover that much quicker from emergencies in their own communities. And these are, th- I mean, one of the um, the creative communities um, that came up with something was um, a young youth com- community um, in a remote, isolated area in the north who had um, created uh, an emergency response snowmobile team that would be able to de- be trained and deployed to be able to go to areas where no one can access them in the wintertime, except, you know, the quickest way would be through snow machines. And so, just an, an example of now. And FEMA had awarded that group as well as others that year um, with being recognized as coming up with these creative, innovative solutions that perhaps us sitting in the FEMA offices or in our own offices might not come up with those types of things because we're not embedded in the community. We don't have those types of skills and talents and being able to figure out, hey, this is what we need in our community and we can provide it and let's figure out a way to do it. Fortunately, now FEMA and other emergency management agencies across at least North America are recognizing that as a a real value and things that can really help and enable our governments and our organizations to help respond and recover. Instead of, I think, before, you know, 10, 20 years ago, we would look at external people or organizations that weren't already within our fitted structure we would look at them perhaps as impeding on our response and recovery capabilities. But now, I believe that we're looking at them as being able to help us. And I think that's also all embedded in our whole um, public and private partnerships model that really is being discussed and really adopted across North America, and I really like that. And I think that if anything, we should add a P in there because I think what we're really talking about is just the extra P, which is the people they are adding the personal side to the public-private partnerships
0: piece. Yeah, it's uh, and I, I appreciate too, you know, a uh, uh, shouting out to how agencies are already starting to do this, and again, just a reminder of how young this latest evolution of emergency management is, uh, and that the, these things really are fairly rapidly, at least through the arc of history, coming to the fore um, with the recognition with the individual and community preparedness recognitions and. And things like that with, of course, more work to do. I, I always think back to, I may have even mentioned it on, on an episode of this podcast, with our work with the Resilient Children, Resilient Communities Initiative, working with um, community partners to build child-focused community resilience at the um, National Center for Disaster Preparedness at Columbia University, one of our uh, community champions in the first phase. Um, in this project, we would work with folks in the community um, to kind of coordinate across the different sectors within the community and help elevate their voice. And what we ended up working with was a number of really just amazing folks who um, weren't necessarily from the field of disaster preparedness, and in many cases weren't. They knew about disasters, they had experienced them, they had (laughs) survived them, but were not um, professionals in the sense that they had professional training for it, so didn't have the same vocabulary or the same biases. And, And I remember when we were starting out and thinking, how do we get members of the child-serving institutions to the table and you know you get 10 folks in this field including myself around the table and at least nine of them are going to be saying oh they don't understand how important this is they don't understand the risk we need to scare them into (laughs) into uh um commitment uh kind of thing we need to talk about all the bad stuff that could happen and um without all of that baggage i remember in the the meeting she said um how do we get these community partners to realize how important they are? How do we get them to re- realize, to see how much value they bring to the resilience of the community? Um, and that that really s- stuck with me because without kind of all the things that a lot of us walk into the room with, she really saw the problem very differently that it wasn't about scaring people into commitment. It was about, um, helping them see how wonderful they are, how much value they bring every day um, that we can take for granted and how important that is in times of a disaster. So it became a message of empowerment rather than fear. Um, and similarly, every time I, you know, you and I speak, I always think of that with your work as well too, as how, as it really helps to kind of flip the script on the way that um, uh, we've, traditionally sort of looked at these terrible things happening, uh, which I think is really important. So um, anyway, just a little tangent on my part. Sorry about that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, no, I completely agree.
0: Um, So, you know, we talked a little bit about how, uh, you know, emergency management agencies and, and other organizations are starting to recognize and celebrate shining a light On this work. Um, I'm thinking back to another, and maybe this is a little niche, but the, you know, emergency managers, unsolicited donations, spontaneous volunteers. You know, a lot of times we've been kind of trained to see that as a burden, right? Um, Which it can be if it's not managed, right? You get a lot of stuff in that you don't need. You now have to deal with that. A lot of people call it a secondary disaster. Um, Spontaneous volunteers. (laughs) But then, We see other things where there are models. um, I always think of the Cajun Navy as an example, where maybe at first in in early disasters in the 2000s, it was, well, let's keep our volunteers at arm's length until we know how to bring them in. And then sort of with a lot of these transitions and lessons learned from Katrina, um, started looking at how do we integrate these spontaneous volunteers and really take advantage of the bandwidth that they bring to the table. And then we see them as really game changers in some of these hurricane responses and being able to help evacuate people who are trapped, Um, the way that they're integrated in with law enforcement, things like that. Um, I'm curious if you have thoughts, you know, looking at disaster heroes on, you know, are there opportunities to better operationalize this, to better fold these synergies where they exist into the operations of disaster responders? Um, And of course, where the limits might be.
1: Well, and I, and it's great that you mentioned the whole issue of unsolicited donations and spontaneous volunteers because any large scale disaster, as you know, we see that happen all the time. And unfortunately, yes, that's an area that sometimes creates its own, um, issue and, and having to handle that, coordinate that logistically becomes its own, uh, problem. However, um, I think, yeah, we need to differentiate, I guess, the difference For people who are in the middle of responding to and recovering from an emergency, what the difference is really between what we don't want and what we don't need um, and what we would want as opposed to I think perhaps sometimes it's just really about explaining to the communities and the community leaders and the decision makers at the time what we mean by spontaneous volunteers and the things that we don't need and already have too much of as opposed to being able to be open to Um, people making specific offers of things or services that might be things that would be able to help us. And sometimes those services or those creative solutions may even help us be able to figure out these other problems that have been created now by all of these unsolicited, unsolicited donations coming in. And I'll give you an example of how that happened, where these spontaneous volunteers, if you would call them that back in the day, ended up helping to be able to ensure that the backlog or the um, excess unsolicited donations were dealt with accordingly and that the government and those agencies didn't have to deal with that. Was back, and these are actually two that are covered in my original book, Disaster Heroes, Rebecca and Genevieve Williams. And I believe you know them. Um, and they were very much part of the um, recovery efforts after the Joplin tornado. In Joplin, And they were just two Joplin area residents at the time and who had gone through the tornado and about two and a half hours after the tornado hit, their community, if you recall, um, back then in 2013, it was, and to this day, it's still one of the costliest and deadliest tornadoes in U.S. history. But about two and a half hours after the tornado touched down, just outside of where they were living, um, they realized that, you know, as soon as you'd Google and look for information, people were getting different information, misinformation, and of course that still happens today, but you can imagine how that happened back then when most first response agencies, even FEMA, didn't have any kind of social media presence back then. And that was only several years ago, and it's amazing to see. We don't really think about how quickly even social media has now taken over and changed things. But back then, most agencies didn't have anything. Well, Rebecca and Genevieve Williams, they see their community go through this deadly tornado and realize that there's all kinds of misinformation out there and no real source of information for people to go for credible information. So uh, Genevieve, the daughter of the mother-daughter dealer that I'm talking about, um, had recently graduated from a social media program and was pretty well-versed in social media, had a pretty big following on Facebook, And so they decided that they were going to create what now is and was um, the first ever recognized community Facebook page developed in response to a disaster. And it was through Rebecca and Genevieve Williams creating something called Joplin Tornado Info. And why I'm mentioning this story specifically is twofold. One is to just, what they ended up doing was creating... In a Facebook page that became the reliable, up to date resource that everybody in the community went to because Rebecca and Genevieve, whatever information they would post on there, they would only post when it came from, val- uh, they were validated by the actual vetted sources first. So anything that would have been released by police or fire or emergency management or those different agencies, that was what they would assemble on that one Facebook page. So that became the most consistent, reliable, up-to-date area for people to go. Um, But back in the day, only several years ago now, but a whole lifetime ago, if we talk about social media, (laughs) especially social media and emergency management, they were being told at the time, wait, what are you doing? You're not part of the system. You're not trained in emergency management. And they were being told by recognized agencies to take, take the Facebook page down. Because they were not open to this new creative way of opening up to these new solutions that we had out there um, because they weren't vetted and approved yet by our industry. However, thankfully, they did not take that page down. Mm -hmm. And again, like I mentioned, they became the resource, but not only to be able to help, um, they they helped coordinate and find loved ones. Loved ones find other loved ones on that Facebook page. They helped coordinate volunteer efforts to get volunteers where they needed to go with the skills that they needed to be able to rebuild or fix or do whatever they needed to do to clean up after during the recovery process. Um, They also helped ensure that they could allocate space to be able to put these unsolicited donations that were coming in to be able to take care of making sure that they were, you know, taken care of and hidden out of the way so that then the government response agencies or others wouldn't have to deal with those kinds of things. So I'm showing you just one example of welcoming in everyday ideas and how that ended up benefiting in so many different ways. And now I can tell you that agency that originally had told Rebecca and Jenny to shut it down, now go across the country and tout their efforts Mm -hmm. as a model example of what a community should do and how they should use social media effectively after a disaster.
0: Well, that's a great, uh, I'm so glad that they came around to that, and as you mentioned, I think that, you know, you talk today with any agency, at least in principle, there's a desire to be more fluent and more active and, and hard to, you know, um, uh, forget that even just a few years ago, it was very, uh, very much a different environment. I think what it shows too is that, you know, disasters are such, by definition, although we're seeing so many of them, um, every disaster is so unique, making each individual disaster a rare event. There aren't a lot of procedures <laughs> in place. Even on the research side, there isn't a lot of evidence. So we don't know everything that we need to know. And agencies can be very rigid in being procedure based and also with their own all the baggage that comes with being a public agency and so i I love the message of just kind of the openness to you know these more flexible community-based organizations that are more have their finger on the pulse of a lot of the unmet need and also have the agility to create solutions very quickly um as we mentioned there's there's a downside to that at times where you have solutions that maybe aren't really needed (laughs) But, uh, but at the same time, some of the most innovative practices and are are coming from the hearts of these communities um, at the uh, uh, outer bounds of the disaster field, if that's what we want to call it, and uh, being able to recognize that, capture that, um, celebrate that, but also replicate it. I think those are some of the best, um, uh, most important things um, that, that I see happening on my end in a this space as well, too. Um, you mentioned uh, Rebecca and Genevieve, and I, I believe that, um, at least at the time of this recording, they're the folks on your most recent uh, podcast, is that right?
1: That's right, yes.
0: Um, so, so talk to us a little bit about uh, your podcast. It's uh, a new venture just in the last, I think, month or two, um, and um, kind of expanding on the notion of the Disaster Heroes book. Uh, tell yeah. us about it. Sure,
1: thanks for asking. Well, people had been asking quite a bit over the last few years ever since the book came out, because I'm realizing that people really enjoy hearing the stories and wanna hear more stories. And there are so many heroes out there, as you know, I mean, every disaster, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, unfortunately we have a lot of emergencies and disasters, but fortunately for every one of those, we have hundreds, thousands of heroes that we can be profiling. So I'm getting on both sides kind of, I've been getting requests from people, when are you gonna write another book or we wanna hear more of these stories? Um, and then I have had, Few people saying that we should launch a podcast on it and then uh, finally i decided okay that's probably the best and most effective way to be able to get these stories out now is to be able to interview people and what better way to get people to, sh- to help people share their stories than have them share their stories themselves in their own voice so um it would this was a great way to be able to do that and so yeah i launched officially disaster heroes the podcast it's, um, every episode's gonna be about between 30 to 40 minutes or so. And I normally sit down with just one person and usually it's an everyday hero, or just somebody who has some, has done something really great or continues to do something great to help a community or their community or several communities um, be prepared for or respond to disasters. And um, the... Uh, an example. why well, I just had Rebecca and uh, Rebecca talk about her and Genevieve's story about the Joplin tornado and what they did to respond to that. That's the latest episode that just aired. And then I also just um, interviewed a, um, a a young boy who just decided to raise funds to be able to help his local fire departments um, equip them with life-saving um, pulmonary resuscitation equipment. Um, so that he would be able to ensure that each one of the fire trucks in his uh in his uh local area would be able to each have one of these very costly units, so it goes to uh, these these stories are everything from and these are again the heroes themselves telling their stories, and that's the one challenge is to get people to call themselves heroes i mean that's the whole the whole thing about a hero is they're not doing it to be recognized mm-hmm. as a hero, right so that's the one challenge. Sometimes it's tough to, and I don't really call them a hero while I'm interviewing them because, you know, they kind of am, but it's really more about focusing on showing the positive side and giving people ideas of the kinds of ways and creative ways people have come up with to be able to help their communities or um, their, sometimes their countries, be able to help respond to an emergency or a disaster.
0: Uh, that's wonderful. I, I think that um, uh, and, and certainly so. You you're on iTunes on on the, you know the various podcast distributors. Um, so folks can just search Disaster Heroes. That should pop up. That's
1: right. Yeah, and I'm on every major platform. If they look for Disaster Heroes, the podcast should be listed on there, and they can also find it online, and um, they can check out more about Disaster Heroes. There's a website, and hoping to beef that up more so that once. the the stories are profiled, I can also have links back um, so that people can have more information. They can go to the disasterheroes.com website to be able to to get more information on on each of the, uh, the stories that are profiled every two weeks.
0: That's great. And, and so listeners, you, you heard it here, you have no excuse for not finding it. So uh, listen in and uh, <laughs> uh, get a little uh, uh, goodness in your day hearing about some, some great folks from folks who uh, don't like to be called heroes, but are, are indeed heroes. Um, so how can people kind of follow your work? Is there anything you have, uh, anything else going on you wanted to talk about? And how can folks kind of keep track of a lot of the great work you're doing through websites, social media, etc.? I know you mentioned a few already.
1: Sure. Yeah, and I have a, my own website too where they can just go to myname.com. So that's SuzanneBernier.com. And I have a website there where if people want to know where I'm speaking at upcoming, I list everything there. My next speaking engagements, I'm going from one end of North America to the other kind of, I'm going speaking at a at a conference in Calgary, Alberta, in here in Canada uh, next week. And then the following week, I'll be speaking at the Volunteer Florida emergency management convening in, um, in Orlando, and so I'm kind of, you can catch me at different emergency management conferences, but they're all listed on my website, and so people can find out a bit more about where I'm talking and what I'm talking about on there, and um, they can also find me um, on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at SBCrisis. People can also find me on LinkedIn. I love to link in with people. So if people want to, you know, link me in and if I can help them, connect them with any other heroes out there or, or if they want to, you know, hit me up with any suggestions of people that they think that I should be profiling, um, then that would be great if they reach out to me. They can reach out to me through either my website or they can reach out through LinkedIn.
0: That's great. Thank you so much for, for all that you're doing, um, both to further the, the resilience of communities out there, but also to provide um, some much needed positivity and celebration of the things that are done right, that, that just have such a tremendous impact on communities. Um, hopefully, uh, we'll, we'll stay in touch and, and talk to you again in the future. But the, thank you so much for joining us today. Perfect. Thank you, Jeff. Suzanne Vernier for joining us today and talking about the Disaster Heroes Movement, a lot of the great work that she's doing, um, and also for helping to contextualize this. How can we take the great work that's being done, uh, the celebration of these ordinary people doing extraordinary things, and really fold that into the way we think about, the way we operationalize emergency management? How do we build better policies, better systems that embrace these emergent actors within communities? Uh, if you like what we're doing here, give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Leave us some comments. Tell us you like what you're seeing uh, wherever you download this podcast. If you want to keep the conversation going, we're on Twitter. We're at DisasterPolitik. You can also email us at podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, as always, thanks for listening, and whatever you're doing, stay safe out there.